Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. So today's conversation was a fun one. I feel like this guest is one who comes a little bit outside of the field of mental health. And I think it's interesting sometimes to hear someone do what a little bit your partner, John, talks about, like bringing things at street level and talking about the things that we all struggle with as humans um, from the perspective of someone who's not necessarily in the mental health field, but just like how she has sort of gone about the work of um, pattern interruption and doing some of the things that she realized weren't working for her, you know? Yeah, like very lived experience, right? And I, I think that when we hear her, and you'll hear her talk about the the beginning part of her journey, you know, her young life, uh, it becomes really apparent, I, I think at least it did to us, that she feels a bit like one of those souls that came here a lot older than she actually is, uh, and had a lot of moments in her life that were some pretty large catalysts to getting real with herself. But also just the level of self-awareness that she embodied at such a young age, um, I think is, is I don't know, jaw-dropping in a way. Um, but it gives me hope too. I think, I think we're having some of these conversations more often with our younger folks these days. And so maybe some of these ahas and revelations will come to more of us, but she is definitely somebody that I had a jaw drop of like, you are how old when you realized what? <laughs> Yeah. I always think it's interesting watching you listen to those type of um, perspectives just because you've done a lot of work with younger people. And so I feel like when it comes to like developmental stages, especially in adolescence, I tend to refer <laughs> to you a lot. And I'm sitting here thinking it, but having you have that response of like, wow, that level of introspection at that young of an age is actually not that common. So it sort of like resonated for me. Oh, like that actually is the truth if Vanessa thinks so too, you know? Well, I think what's so interesting is that it, it actually is common to have that level of introspection. It's not common to then take it, articulate it, and put action behind changing patterns and behaviors. So we have this ability at that age, right, to be like, oh, something's wrong with this. This doesn't feel like it's working. I'm not happy. This is uncomfortable. Um, and so it's like there's that level of awareness. It's that second step of saying like, what do I do with it, right? How do I change it? And I think for a lot of us when we're young, we are still so focused on people outside of us giving us the answers. Um, because, you know, where most of us are raised in a way to believe that the authority is outside of ourself, not inside of ourself. And it sounds like Trisha was somebody who kind of called bullshit on that from a very early age. And I think that specific point was what was so jaw-dropping for me, was to be so young and to just so clearly know that the internal authority was actually the one to listen to and that nobody else had it right because everybody else around her was fucking miserable. <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess that to me is what I was thinking. I certainly didn't have that. When I was younger, I yeah. was not differentiated no. in that way. Like my focus was on fitting in. I 
I didn't really have the like questioning of what the group mentality was going. I just wanted to feel the safety of belonging. So I guess that's what I felt struck by. Like I don't experience that at least to myself. I don't know what everybody else is thinking, but I didn't have that until much older. So when I listened to her talk about like being 15 and challenging what the group mentality was and, you know, like really saying, no, I'm not going to go along with that just to belong. I was like, that's incredible to me. I did not have that until much later in life, you know? I still struggle with that. Let's be real. I mean, 43, I'm starting to feel like I'm getting there, you know? (laughs) Totally. But, you know, this conversation, I think, is enjoyable for more reasons. Like, we talk about all the things that you all are used to listening to Danae and I talk about, right? We talk about intuition. We talk about responsibility. um, We talk about, you know, the idea of shoulds and, and societal expectations. And I think... To your point, when we started this conversation, and you just said, like, she's somebody who brings it to street level. And so I think that it's very accessible. Um, And yeah, I hope you guys enjoy as much as we did. Hey, guys, welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Vanessa and I are so excited for today's guest. Uh, Trisha Huffman is podcast host, speaker, manager of integrity to Grammy Award winning artist and founder of Your Joyologist. She specializes in working with those in the public eye to keep them in integrity with who they want to be while also enjoying their life. I love this. She is a mental health and mindset expert known for sharing real talk with heart, calling you to uncover and honor who you are and empowering you to claim your joy daily through her social media. And um, Trisha, we're just so excited to have you with us. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm super excited, Trisha, because you just recently launched your new book, right? Um, And I want you to dive into that a little bit. I like devoured it this last weekend and um, I pulled out so many things that I want to ask you. Um, But usually before we get there, I want to start with kind of how we intro everybody because we're therapists and we are very interested in, you know, people's histories and kind of what made them who they are. And so I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how you got here, right? Like how did you become who you are and and get into the work that you're doing? You know, I, without giving too much away, unless you want to go there, I know that from reading your book, there was a couple pretty traumatic experiences. It sounds like you had an experience when you were younger about um, kind of hitting that wall and potentially considering ending everything. Um, It sounds like you you lost your father in a really traumatic way. So I'm assuming some of that had, you know, played into this, but I would love for you to just give us a little bit of that origin story of of Trisha. Yeah, you're totally correct. Those two, that's what I was before you were leading into those, like, those are the two like pivotal moments in my life that I feel have really you know, made me who I am and do the work that I continue to do and why I wrote this book. And so those stories are in the book. But yeah, um, I when I was 15, I mean, <laughs> I feel like 15 has got to be a challenging age for most people. Um, so just freshman in high school and um, and feeling like I, you know, like I felt like always this like craving to fit in but yet stand out, right? It's like, what, you know, like, what music am I supposed to like? What do we wear right now? Like, what's cool to do? Is it even like cool to raise my hand or not? You know, like, so I I would be aware of these sorts of things, but then also like wanting to stand out, like, right? Like, I really like wanted to be seen and heard. And it's such an interesting thing that I think we, I still, 41, find myself wanting to like do unconsciously and it's so confusing because it's like well if we're so craving to want to be seen but yet we end up being like 
what should I be doing? What's, what's the right way to do this? Or what's this? What's acceptable? So it's so confusing. So anyway, so I was aware of that, but I also had a lot of physical undiagnosed pain. And my mom took me all sorts of specialists and nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. And my parents really did care about me. And my, like I said, my mom took so much time to take me to all these specialists, but it also kind of felt like I was a burden to my, like, you know, and like nobody also really seemed to care. Like I missed school. I was barely in school five days a week. I took advantage of this also. <laughs> like it was sort of like, oh, we don't know what's wrong with Trisha. So if she says she wants to go home today, like let her go like from the school and stuff. So I like, I also like took advantage of that. And I am honest about that, but it was like, it didn't really even feel like my friends cared that I wasn't at school and stuff too. Like nobody even really asked me. And that hurt. <laughs> and I had lots of friends and I was popular. People liked me. I got invited to all the, you know, cool stuff. Um, so it wasn't even like that I was an outcast, but just feeling that. So the physical pain, but all of that feeling like isolated and lonely that I really did think about ending my life a lot. And my dad had sleeping pills. So I just like figured that would be the easy way. But I did think about other options. Um, and because of the chronic pain I had and stuff, I didn't sleep well. So this would be staying awake late at night. And so one day, and it was a silly thing, like my mom, my grandmother was going to be coming over for dinner and I was going to have to sit at the table with my family. Like, that's what made me do this like life, like, okay, this is it. Like, I couldn't imagine myself sitting at the dinner table with my family because um, I isolated myself like that much. Uh and so that was like, I had this sort of breakdown moment and was just like, I'm either going to do this finally and it, the the language that I use to talk about is not obviously what happened in my head as a 15-year-old, but it was basically like, well, if I'm so close to ending this all, like, what if I just stopped caring so much about what other people thought? Like, I saw that I didn't have any fixes for the physical pain at the time, but really aware of, like, how much a mental and emotional pain I was causing myself by, like, really worrying so much about what other people thought or even, like, well, why don't they ask me what's wrong with me and why don't – like, those things were hurtful, but it was, like, I put so much attention on other people and what they thought about me. And so I was, like, what if I just try living, like, act, putting more attention on what I want and what I think about myself than what other people do? And so I chose to live on that day, and I really feel like every day since it's, like, that commitment to, like, well, I – I'm choosing to be here. I'm choosing to be alive. And so from that day, it is not still, again, 40 when I'm 41. It's still not like an easy, like I made that choice. I'm an easy breezy. I never cared what anybody thought about me. But it's like this continuous coming back to, oh, I'm really, I can feel myself in this emotional pain right now. What's really happening? Like, is this my stuff? That's pretty insightful for a 15 year old, I have to say, yeah. like, I have to interject and be like, holy shit. Cause I know at 15, I don't think I had the wherewithal to, to have that kind of, you know, and as somebody who also struggled with, and I, I would actually say this is a moment to normalize the fact that those, that age, you know, when your brain is going through all kinds of crazy changes and the hormones and everything, it's so common to think about suicide in adolescence. And we actually don't talk about it enough because we as parents are so terrified of this concept of it might happen. And there's been a lot of conversation out there within depth psychology around actually the importance of allowing for this story that that adolescents have around death because it's it can be more metaphorical, death and rebirth, which is what you ended up allowing it to be. Um, and if we don't allow space for that, sometimes it can go the other way. But anyway, I mean that's a tangent. I just it just is it's striking me how 
pivotal, you know, at 15 to be like, I'm going to actually take this and use this as a way to change my, my daily living. And, and you did. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've struck as well by the same thing, the level of emotional intelligence. And I think there's often to me a thin line between those who are like really intelligent and how that can also be deeply challenging because I am in my head. I am really like thinking through things to a point that almost can cause some of that suffering you're you're talking about, right? And I think when there's not a container or someone holding space for like normalizing and this is what this looks like and even like, you know, a space to sort of process that, which I don't know, like to Vanessa's point, I think is incredible that you were able to do that introspective work for yourself. But to me, it also like really speaks to your level of emotional intelligence at that age because that's tough. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand what when you were both saying that I was trying to think back because obviously I don't know. Like I do like felt like I had awarenesses early on, but I didn't necessarily like I remember being like in elementary school and I was like best friends based on how that we grew up close to each other in the same neighborhood. I was best friends with the girl that sort of became the like leader. So in elementary school, be like, we don't like Kim today. And like so then everybody went like Kim. And I remember being like, but that doesn't make sense. But I do like Kim. You know, like, so I remember it, like, why, wait, I don't understand this, like, (laughs) and that was, it was my best friend that was, like, making those rules, and I was like, but no, so I do remember questioning, I also, I was raised Catholic, I went to Catholic schools, and I early on questioned them, so I, I early on was very much, like, questioning authorities and people that were, like, this is how it is, so I was taught these things about Catholic, and they, my, the nuns, I didn't agree with what they said about something about like how my grandmother had died and that they basically told me she must have gone to hell. And I was like, nope. So I don't believe anything that you have said to me. And from that day on. And so I still and also my parents were very unhappy, but they stayed together for the kids. They separated early on or like when I was in middle school and got together and they were miserable. So I also had a lost respect for my parents. I had lost respect for religious, like I, like, I like, you know, and I'm guessing other people would have gone through those fears and not, but like those things where I sort of was like at 15, sort of like, well, why am I caring so much about what other people think when they don't seem happy? Like even my parents. So at that age, at 15, I was like, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to go live my life. And listen, I showed up and got good grades. I had a job. I worked. So I was still like responsible. But I also was like, you can't give me a curfew or anything. Like, what are you going to do? Isn't this so funny though, right? So it's like at 15, you're this kid who you, you're calling bullshit on everyone around you. It's like all of these people are supposed to be the experts. They're supposed to be telling me what the hell to do. Meanwhile, you're all miserable. I know what you're saying is full, you know, you're full of shit. You're full of shit. Like, and, and I do wonder if, um, having that sort of awareness of just being, and, and this happens a lot in adolescence too. I tell people all the time, I'm like, listen, kids are smarter, right? Then we get them credit for. And a lot of times what happens is they'll call shit bullshit and be like, I don't trust you, parental figures, authority figures, or sometimes it flips the opposite way and they say, well, they're all saying it's this way and I don't think it is, so I must be the one not to trust. But it sounds like you went the opposite way and you just kind of became this person that was like, I'm going to stand back, I'm going to observe, I'm going to evaluate, and I'm, I'm going to call bullshit on all of this stuff that I see. And that feels like a really big superpower to, to uncover at 15. Yeah. So again, it's like, I realized other people could have gone through those things in different, but I do feel like, yeah, I did. I saw through a lot of the bullshit early on and was just sort of, again, if I was so close to taking my life, then I was like, well, yeah, like what's the point of living if you're going to be unhappy and like live by these bullshit rules or, okay, I'm just going to keep focusing on this is what I want. And this is what feels good to me. And, um, it was, it's very lonely. (laughs) 
sure. <laughs> and challenging still. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, but again, I'm like, well, this is my life and I chose to live with it. Live. I'm choosing to live it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that was pivotal moment one. <laughs> and that led me to like, I became a live sound engineer touring with Grammy award winning artists. I didn't know what it even was called. I went to concerts and I was just like, oh, I, the guitar is too loud. The singers could be like louder. And I didn't know what it was, but again, I just was like, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to make it work. And I made my, like sort of clawed my way into this world. And I was very successful at it. And I was living out my biggest dream like absolutely loving my life when I was on tour and when I wasn't. Um, and also seeing that these people that I was working for were living like their biggest dreams, like, right. They were singing their own songs, traveling around the world. Like, let me, Oh, bye. We'll see you in a couple months. I'm hopping on a private jet to go here. This one person I work with would buy the same pair of shoes over and over. Cause she loved them. And she didn't remember that she already owned them. And I just really love that. <laughs> like, like, you know, like I love, like when I say that story, it's not like, like, let me roll my eyes at her. It was like, you know, like, just like they had every, you know, like we say, Oh, the people that have it, all like they, ha- they even had loving people in their life so it wasn't even that I was witness to like well they have everything but they have really toxic you know families or relationships like that exists 1000% but I saw the people that were living the best but also wow they're really unhappy a lot of the time <laughs> and uh, they cannot they don't set ba- I didn't I didn't we didn't have the term boundaries <laughs> before social media so like like wow like just realizing like yeah they don't know what to say yes to or no to or in comparison or people are really taking advantage of them and just like noticing all unhappiness but I didn't do anything with it it was just like oh interesting humans huh we're all humans no matter how good you have it and then my father passed away suddenly. He was only 58. And so it was a total shock accident. Um, and I never expected that to affect me like it did. Uh, I was just a complete mess. I was supposed to be getting on a plane to Australia when it happened. Went home for the funeral instead, but then still right after the funeral flew to Australia to meet the tour that I was supposed to be on because I didn't know what else to do. But also like that was more my family, like being on the road and like stuff. And I was such a mess. Like his death did a lot of different things to me. Like I realized I held back a lot of my emotions. Um, And so like just crying at his funeral was actually a big thing for me that was hard to do that I had to like force myself to let myself do that. I was like fighting so hard. Cause I was like, I'm st-. like that moment at 15 did a lot for me, but also was like, I'm strong and dependent. I don't need anybody. And so like a lot of, you know, blocked off emotions <laughs> from that and not allowing people to support me um, or of allowing myself to feel certain things. So I was just a mess and I was like crying behind myself. Like I was like, okay, I'm allowing emotions from now on. I'm allowing all emotions. So I'd be like crying behind my soundboard <laughs> and and it was fine. The people were okay with me. Like they were my family, but I just was like, I can't do this anymore. I was so then witness to how a mess I was, but everywhere I went, how miserable the majority of people that I crossed paths looked waiting in line for coffee. And this was also again before like iPhones. So it wasn't like you're in the coffee shop and everybody's looking at their phone. Like that was probably like flip phone, you know, yeah. like well, maybe you had, uh, what were those other, what were those? A little Nokia block the phones. Pre- <laughs> that one company that was like the ruler before iPhone. It was Nokia, right? Samsung? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Blackberry. Blackberry. Okay, Blackberries exist, We've but still, that was really for like very businessy people. I know. We're like, what <laughs> isn't that crazy? Excuse me for needing to really take a moment to well, name I love, that. I love <laughs> it. Like, None of us could find it. We're like, hmm. 
I was like, whoa, I forgot what that company was. That's Shit. Amazing. Age. Um, but I was just really witness to like, why does everybody look so mm. miserable? And one, getting like, they don't know why I'm, you know, like, yeah. I'm a mess. But my dad's death, again, woke me up in many ways. So I was really grieving. But I also was like, it made me so present to mm-hmm. everything. Um, And it was like getting, of course, we all have stuff and going through things. So it's not like, only joy. Come on, people, just be happy. But it also was like, yeah, and your life is happening. And like, do people, yeah, do people know you could just slip and hit your head and die? Because that's what happened to my dad. Like, it was a freak thing. And we always hear you could die tomorrow and, you know, like live every day like it's your last day. And well, that's not, you know, but it's like, that could actually happen. No, but really. And, and that's still like a motto. Like the live your day, like, you know, it's like live, it's like your last day. It's like, that's not really like your, if that was the reality, I'd be like giving up their, like, they're not going to show up and do emails and stuff like that. But what I relate it to more is like, so why are you worrying about, again, all this bullshit that's weighing you down? So like, yeah, you're still going to pay your bills. You still got to do this, whatever. But like, what are you putting so much time and attention on that doesn't matter? Mm. Um, so I ended up quitting my dream job. And I had like a whole year of tour I was supposed to be doing. And, you know, and um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I had to do something to wake people up. Like it was sort of like, oh, I'd seen I'd been living my way this long, you know, with this awareness and choice, like seeing this choosing to live and all of that. And I was like, I need to do something to wake other people up. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So I just like gave up my life. And then I also, that's when I gave up the word should, which is what the whole book is about, but all the lessons it taught me since then. And um, I ended up making up a new job that I went back on tour a year later, taking care of artists because that was who I knew. And again, I saw that they were miserable. And so that's where the, my, the Your Joyologist brand came from as I was titled their joyologist. Mm. And so I sort of became a mental health and wellness person that was grounding them, keeping them healthy in body and mind, and also like talking them through their their shit. Like if they'd had a bad day and everybody's, you know, on eggshells because of them, they're slamming doors. And I'd be like, open the door. Hi. So what's going on with you? So what's making you act like this? Okay. So what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Or just like, okay, great. You don't like doing interviews. And so you're really resentful of that. So did you realize you could actually like set boundaries and you could say like maybe we do this amount of boundaries or you know this amount of interviews or also things like why do you you do interviews right to connect with fans and this like like just that's what I later got the title of manager of integrity from Jason Mraz who was one of the main beer people I toured with and that because it was like allowing him to be very aware of what he was doing and why and not just to feel like all of this was happening and he had no like yeah. Yeah. But it's like, oh, I'm living my dream and it's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> and like for you forget you have choices in all of that because there's so many people also in that running of your dream life. Mm. Manager of a So those are the two pivotal moments. <laughs> I mean, there's just so many. I like literally took notes as you were speaking, Trisha, because there's so many places I feel like you're speaking to a lot of potent spiritual principles to me in what you're saying. You know, I'm so struck by at a young age, the awareness you had of, you know, it just being lonely to see the world differently. I do believe there are some souls that are a little bit older. I think that can be mm-hmm. a lonely experience. I think Oprah talks about like, you know, her grandma hanging laundry and saying, you better pay attention because you're going to be doing this one day and her sort of watching and being like, no, I'm not. Like just that awareness of like, my life is going to be different than what everyone around me says 
is my, you know, are my options. Um, and I hear some of that in you just having this awareness when you were young that like everybody sort of wants to be seen, but is terrified of rejection. And it's this like dance that, you know, the human ego battles. I think these are like universal struggles that we all have. Um, and they feel like, you know, as you're talking about the concept of death, and I, I constantly say, I try to me- meditate on death every day. I think that Losing someone abruptly who meant so much to me changed my life in the most beautiful way possible. I think that's what you're speaking to. But I think most of us are in just such, I mean, to a certain extent, healthy denial of the fact that all of this is temporary. But also, it really changes the way we live when we sort of live from that visceral state of awareness of like, no, actually, though, it is temporary. And I love that you speak to that in your work. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting because... I will find myself, I have two kids now. So, you know, like even like driving and there's like a freak, like, oh my gosh, like, you know, like have to stop real fast. And I was like, have these moments of like, oh my gosh, what if that had been it? Mm-hmm. Like, what if that was in my mind immediately? Like I go to, well, then that would have been it. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> and it's interesting that it does that, that it's like, instead of falling into, I do feel this fear and this, and it does make me be like, well, okay, maybe I need to get life insurance or like, <laughs> Yeah, like it makes me be like, well, what do I need to be to be like actionable if that was it? But it also is like, then I guess that would be it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wouldn't be there to figure out what would be next for other people in my life. And, <laughs> and I think that also has me showing up every day with like, again, being present and like, I'm here now. Mm-hmm. I really love that. Mm-hmm. I don't I think know for so how often yeah. that then that would be it is the place that we resist going to. That is the point of integration of like, we resist that thought, we re- resist that reality and we do all sorts of things to distract. But but you're right. If we can integrate the space of like, but what would that mean if that were it? Like, how can I stay present with that as a truth? I think that's a little bit of um, how we get out of the space of distracting against that or rejecting that thought, you know? That. Mm-hmm. I want to get into the book. So I want to like dive into some of the topics that I, I highlighted in my, my diving in. Um, so first, I want everybody to know the book is called F the Shoulds, Do the Wants, right? <laughs> So, okay, because I was like, I don't really, I'm talking about the book, but I don't know if you actually said the name of the book. So, Danae and I talk so frequently about the, the, the inner trust, right? So, we, we talk about it in this form of inner belonging, um, you know, uh, intuition. Obviously, we talk a lot about intuition. And there's a couple points that I actually highlighted um, that I thought were really interesting. So, one of them is you put this little, I guess it's a quote, but I, I'm going to read it. So, you say, in case no one told you, Trusting your intuition can feel annoying, Mm -hmm. can feel scary, can feel lonely, can feel confusing, but it is always, always, always worth it. And I highlighted this more because I thought it was kind of funny. It like tickled me that the first thing you said was can feel annoying. And I want you to speak a little (laughs) bit about that. Like I have my own idea of what that means, but, and I talk about intuition a lot in my codependency work, but I, I would love to hear kind of what your thoughts were when you were writing that or where that comes from. Yeah. I mean... I think because it's just like I well I think that often people think of intuition as this like clear ringing bell or like a spotlight comes on and you're like oh and like everything just immediately feels like good and and sometimes I think that is true but often it can be annoying and challenging because it's like maybe you're it's like it would be easier to say yes to that thing or do that thing or to keep doing it the way you've been toned to do it. But it's like, you really know, like, that's not for me or I don't really like being in this relationship or I don't like the way I'm being treated. Like whatever the thing is, it usually like annoying part is usually because 
you kind of have to confront yourself and maybe even like, you know, be clear with someone else, whether that's even just saying no. Yeah. Like, no, I can't make it or no, I can't help you with that thing is like annoying because it feels like it would be just so easy, much easier a lot of times to ignore that. <laughs> like, no, oh, I keep feeling this thing inside me that's telling me this isn't right for me or this is what's best, you know, like these things. But like, it, wouldn't it just be easier to just do what this person's doing or do what this person wants of me or expects of me or whatever the thing. I like to talk about so it with that's my probably, clients of like, you, you hit this cross roads when you're starting to do this work and you are building your intuition where it's like uh, short-term gain versus long-term gain, right? It's like you get to go, mm. okay, well, I'm at that point again. If I take a right and mm. I do the thing I've always done before, it's going to be easier in this moment. But long-term, I know that's going to be more painful because it's I'm very aware now and clear because I'm doing this work that that's not where I want to go. Or I take a left turn, I do the harder thing now, but I get that long-term gain of I'm moving closer and closer to more integrity, you know, deeper understanding of myself, intuition, all these things. And so it's like, yeah, I, d I just love that you said annoying because that that's it. I mean, it really does feel annoying because you just like, <laughs> it, I, I get this like image in my head of like that adolescent me wanting to like cross my arms and stamp my feet and be like, but I don't want this to be hard. Like I want to do it this way because this is easier, you know, and it's, it's just, it's so poignant. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like really like our concept of easier. It's like, it's not necessarily, it's just like, but yeah, it's like, well, what we've known or what people expect, or again, it's usually like following like the should instead of like what we actually know feels best for us. And like what you're saying, yeah, the long-term gain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing to me with what you're saying about the shoulds is that so much of what is underneath that is our desire for belonging, right? Like our attachment needs, mm -hmm. our our conditioned sense of like, this is going to be your survival from very early on to attach to society and your community. And so I guess what I hear comes up a lot of times, and you're so right that I, I always like to say to the client, if there's a should statement underneath whatever the thing is, like there's room for some inquiry, like who says, right? But what do you say to people about like the inevitable like guilt or I'm being selfish or like this is like putting me ahead of like other people when I'm feeling like there's something that is moving against what I should do, but it feels more in alignment with what is my truth. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, several things. I mean, the biggest thing is to see you know, this idea of like the selfishness or going with that, we're often like it's like when you really start to be in full alignment, because, you know, in the book, it's like shifting, it's getting the subtitle is get clear on who you are, what you want and why you want it. And I think it can be easy to be like, oh, F the shoulds do the one. So that means like you're just disregarding anything that's like initially shows up as a should. But I'm saying like, no, getting like inquiry, like get curious about well, what that is. And so it might be just switching a should into a want so that you're then showing up with like, oh, yeah. Uh, I should, you know, help my friend out because I said I would. But do I want to? No. But why would I want to? Because you know what? She's been there a lot for me. So right. I do want to. So sometimes it's just switching it into like, well, why? And then you can be like, and it's a different energy at coming into instead of resentment, like, oh, I got to go do this instead of what I want on my Saturday to like, oh, right. I'm making this choice for this reason. And so it's a want. Um so sometimes it's just like getting clear on what choice you're making and why, and then you can switch into that different energy. But yeah, a lot of times if you're not doing that work, then you are showing up with a lot of resentment towards other people and their expectations of you and all of these things. 
And so I feel like when you're living in this aligned way and doing the once and getting curious and making sure you know what you're doing and why, then whoever gets to see you, the people that you are showing up for, and even like the people at the grocery store and you're running errands, like everyone gets this version of you mm. that is content, that is present, that is doing things like, you know, is showing up because that they want to. It's like when you're making those choices that make you come alive, whether it's even like, oh, I'm going to give myself five minutes to like take a walk before my next call or right or whatever the thing is, or I'm going to say no to that invitation because I really want to take care of myself. When you do things that fulfill you, your energy shifts. Mm -hmm. And so when you are showing up in the world and when you are saying yes to those people, then the version they get of you is the version you want the world to be getting of you, right? But if you're just always doing things because you're expected to, because it shoulds, then you are oftentimes coming with this energy of like resentment and stuff. And that's not what you want people to be receiving. So it's paying attention to like when, you know, I say like self-care or no, being not self-care, but yeah, it's like doing things. It's not like being selfish because not only are you thinking of you, you're thinking of everyone else. Because when I do things and I'm like burnt out, but I'm like, oh, but I don't feel bad saying no or changing my mind or whatever, then like I'm usually like more short fused. Mm -hmm. I'm not as present with people. Like I'm not the Trisha I want people to get. <laughs> so, so it's like for their good and my good. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to people like, though? Because I know I, a lot of clients struggle with this when they're like, but I don't actually know what that want is. I don't actually know what that, you know, it's like knowing what your needs and wants are is, is a conversation I have a lot where people are like, it's not that simple to just say like what my needs and wants are when I don't even know what the hell they are, right? Because I've been conditioned my whole damn life, like whether society, family of origin, whatever, um, to not pay attention to myself and my intuition and my needs and my wants, right? So how would you suggest to somebody that's starting out from that place to actually start you know, I mean, I don't want to say that they're starting out farther behind, but it's like, what would you, I guess, as a, as a tool or a tip, maybe give to somebody that's coming in at, you know, at that place? Well, the first tip would be what created this whole self-awareness that led to this book for me was that I actually gave up the word should. So when this started back when my dad died and I didn't know what I was going to be doing, I don't know where it came from, but I said, I'm done with the word should, because I didn't think I was someone who lived a life of shoulds, right? Like you heard my story from 15 on, like I was living my dream life. So it made no sense to me when I was like, I'm done with the word should. So I actually did not allow myself to use it. And when that happened, me, my awareness to that, I was shocked at how often I did use it. And so because of that, that's where the should once watch came from is that I would be, I was so committed that I would be like, hey, what should, and I would stop mid sentence and be like, well, what do I say? Wow. I use this word a lot. What am I going to say? Like, I just needed a word to replace it. And so I tried on some different words. And what I realized that 90% of the time, the word want was the best word to replace it. And so that had me always coming back to me. What should I eat for breakfast? What do I want to eat for breakfast? I should really be doing yoga today. Do I want to, I, do I want to do yoga today? Yeah, I do. Or, or even be able, why do I want to do yoga? Is it because I feel like, you know, like, oh, because it makes me feel stronger, more present, more calm. Great. So I want to do yoga today. So it slowed me down so much that I was really present to what I was doing and why. And then I was constantly asking myself, what do I want? And that's how I made up that job <laughs> and like made up, you know, my whole life. But it was like, so that is like such a big thing. Like, you know, the concept of stop shooting on yourself and all of that is not new. 
And I'm sure I'm not the only person that's given the word up, but that's where all of the self-awareness and that the deep stuff that from this book that comes up, because it is all about the, the shoulds in the book, but it's also not, right? I talk about so much like the struggle with enoughness and judgment and boundaries and resentment and doubt and guilt and shame and everything. But I tie it all back to should because that's how I'm able to be present to all of these feelings that I have. Like I gave the word up in 2008. I still feel the weight of it daily. And so now I don't hear the word necessarily. It's like, oh, what is this feeling? Oh, because I feel like I should be doing this. Or I'm feeling like shame because I didn't get to, I didn't do this today. It's like, so I'm still finding all the ways that I'm going to comparison mode, that I'm feeling a doubt, a fear of that. But I have this awareness because I've been so tuned into that word for years that I'm now just tuned into the energy of it. So that's my biggest tip is to pay attention to the words you're using with yourself and even in your head. And so then you're asking yourself, what do I want all day long? And then you're constantly facing yourself. And then you have to like, and you don't know, but you'll start to figure it out. And an easier tip would just be like opening up your like, you know, brainstorm journal, like just like letting yourself bounce onto the page. What are things that bring me joy? What are things that, you know, I do like to do? Like, yeah, we forget when we've been following just all the shoulds forever than like starting to even just ask yourself, huh, I don't know, like what makes me laugh? Mm -hmm. What's fun for me? Mm -hmm. If I was going to plan a day out and I didn't have to care about what anybody else thought or their locations or expectations or this, what would I want to do? If everybody was just totally on board with what <laughs> I said, because I think what we do, we automatically limit ourselves like, oh, well, I'd like to eat there, but oh, so-and-so doesn't I don't think like that or they live that far. Like we automatically like demote ourselves, right, on like the scale of having a choice or having a preference and we think like, oh because we're such a good person yeah we're so thoughtful but what about like putting giving yourself a seat at the table yeah too? <laughs> i kind of i want to circle back to what you were saying before about resentment because i think that you know this is something that vanessa has really helped me to understand that a lot of times especially as women dropping into the space of what i want is something we can be really resistant to and i think resentment can often be a gateway into you know, I love to sort of say like, but if you look at it through the lens of fear or love, oftentimes if we are feeling the icky feelings that a lot of times come along with resentment, it has to do with the fact that we're doing something based on what we're afraid of, right? Like this person is going to judge me. This person is going to like think less of me, turn away from me. Well, that's based on what I'm afraid of. It's not actually based on authentic love for this person. And so if we look at it this way, it's like, yeah, this people pleasing shooting that I might be doing isn't actually loving. So I think sometimes that can be a way for, again, especially as women to sort of drop into this like, but it's actually not selfish to drop into what I want. Because if I'm in the space of resentment and doing something and it's not what I want to do, that's not actually loving to the people in my life either, right? Right. You're not being honest. Like you're acting as if like a lot of I think resentment can come up is from like we're not communicating actually right like what we want or need or or we just like want people to read our minds or something. Or maybe it is feeling like, uh you know, like the scale is tipped like, oh, I do more in this relationship or whatever, even like friendship wise. I reach out all the time to hang out and they don't, yeah. you know, <laughs> so things like that. You can get resentful about um and I just totally lost what it was. Oh, but yeah, it's like oftentimes then we're not being honest. Like, hey, um, and I would do that even with friendships. It would feel so petty mm -hmm. to a friend that I had for so long to be like, hey, I just want to check in. You know that I have this like not enough story or that people like I resort to nobody cares about me. So like when I have reached out a couple times in the last month to hang out and you say you don't have time, 
Like, I know that you really don't have time and I see your life's busy, but like, can you, you do want to be my friend, right? Like I've had these communications like in the last few years and I'm and as a very self-aware, emotionally intelligent human, but it's like, again, our emotions don't really always make sense. Right. But it's like, well, I know this. I know that she's my friend. I know she's just busy. I know this. And I was just like, you just like, can you just, you still want to be my friend. Right. Like, you know, and you're like, of course. And that leads to like this amazing conversation, you know? So it's like, but it feels like this fear of being honest with someone about even like, oh, you know, I would like you to, you know, can we have a date night every Friday night? And you put your phone away, like whatever the thing is that you want to be happening, but you're not voicing, you're just waiting for them to do it. It's like, you're not being honest about what you want or what you would be seen. And I think this often is, like you said, this fear of like, well, they're going to reject me or they're not going to want to be in this relationship with me anymore. They're not going to want to be my friend. And it's usually so ridiculous. But I'm also like, if you're already living in that fear, Mm -hmm. why not speak up and get clear on it? Like from all this loving place of again, like, well, this is how I'm feeling. And um, that because to get through, like, because I think in I do in my chapter, on the fear, it's like the worst case scenario, we're often already living into that, (laughs) right? right? Like we're already like imaginarily living like, again, oftentimes it can be unconsciously like that we really are like, why are we not saying this? Because I'm afraid that the relationship will be over or I'll be afraid I'm going to get fired, whatever, if you're resentful, like at work, right? Or something like that. So if you're already like living in this fear of the worst case scenario, but then like, well, if you live out that worst case scenario, then it's like, well, then what would happen? Then the relationship would over. Okay. That would really suck, but then that would make space for me to be in a relationship where I am more seen. I am more heard. I do feel like I get the respect that I want. So it's like, why not nudge yourself into that discomfort of having the conversation that's challenging? And then you get to move through all of that icky uncertainty uncertainty and resentment that you have. Well, I think too, you talk about, and you know, I, I say this similarly, this idea of personal responsibility. I mean, so much with resentment is around taking our responsibility for our resentment, right? And I I get like very kind of soapboxy about this idea of resentment where it's like, that's you, that's yours. You get to own that. Nobody else has any part in your resentment. Like resentment is something that you inflict on yourself, right? And what is so beautiful about this idea of like, you're already living in this, why not just nudge yourself a little bit further is also now you're moving into a space of communicating a need. You're moving into a space of um, not only communicating a need, but also you know, soothing and, and expressing to somebody, Hey, I have this need and here's a way that you could actually help me fulfill it. So in that example that you gave with your friend, I think it's so beautiful because I can totally put myself in that situation and I can feel myself like feeling dumb, feeling stupid, feeling, you know, needy, feeling whatever. And yet if I nudge myself into the space of, I'm just going to put words to this and I'm going to, I'm going to communicate, this is what's coming up for me. Do you still want to be my friend? The thing about doing that is I'm also saying to you, I have a need And in this moment, the need is to just simply have you validate back to me that you still love me and that we're still in relationship. And in doing that, that person then has the opportunity to help you meet that need. And so if they say, like your friend did, yeah, of course, like, you know, I love you and you have this deeper conversation. It's like all of this stuff kind of ties into your personal responsibility for meeting your needs, your personal responsibility for not allowing yourself to live in resentment, to live in your head, to openly express yourself and not expect other people to to be in your head, to be reading your mind, right? So I love this idea of taking personal responsibility because it, it really isn't anybody else's job to communicate that stuff but yours. Yeah, and that's and that's like, 
obviously, if you are continually communicating these things with people and they are not able to meet you, then that's where you know, okay, maybe this friendship or relationship, this job, whatever is not for me. So it's not like, you know, oh, you just, you know, oh, it's all me. Yeah. But and how it could do only you know be me that? that's doing wrong in here because right? I'm not voicing it. Yeah. But yes, but you can only know that yeah. if you do then speak up, yeah. make a request, have the conversations. And if like, yeah, if you're constantly then being disappointed by this person. So that's the difference. Like you're having resentment because they're not meeting needs that you probably haven't re- like expressed <laughs> or you feel things are off balance. But then if like, yeah, there's also the creating expe- expectations for people. And if, yeah, if, if you're then in conversation about those things, again, you're constantly being disappointed then seeing, oh, well, is this something I just need to make peace with? Or why do I, maybe I need to shift this relationship with mm-hmm. this person. Because I, mm-hmm. I don't like being continuously disrespected and I have communicated that right. and we have to work yeah. on it. What I, I love about yeah. the like challenging the should narratives as well is I think that it's not always just like my internal shoulds, but it's also like the external shoulds of like what my friend should be doing to demonstrate their care for me, right? Like you're saying, I have a narrative that like I'm not being seen or I have like a story that this is what is happening. And so often I think, as we all do, our ego mind makes the meaning of that means you're a bad friend or that means you you don't care about this friendship when all of us know like each of us are in our own little worlds of what we're going through and there's often like in my wounding in my space of suffering I'm not really curious about what is going on for that other person I'm just like they should if they're a good friend be meeting my needs but what about what could conceivably be going on with them that I'm not thinking about if I'm stuck in what they should quote be doing as my friend you know yeah and what I was saying too is like because of my emotional intelligence stuff, then I do, I automatically think of other people. But sometimes then I'm still left with again this, well, yeah, but I still don't feel great. You know, like, so I would find myself giving people too much slack, right? Or not too much slack. I would be understanding me, oh, okay, well, I feel this way, but it's because they're busy and they got the one this, so it's okay, so it's okay, so it's okay, so it's okay. And so then not having the space to like open up or like be seen by anybody because everybody else has stuff going on. So I can't. And so not allowing myself to even reach out to people. And so then being able to be like both be like, hey, I know you have a lot going on. I'm going through a hard time. Can we like make space to chat? So that too, like that conversation that I had with that one friend, like really created such a deeper opening in our friendship that like that we can then have these check ins. And it's like she is always there for me. Always there. Do we see each other in person very, very freaking rarely. And I would love to see her in person more. We don't also live that close to each other. But, and I, but that's the thing. She doesn't know that I'm having a hard time. She doesn't know that I'm in my head and that I need love and support. She is not a mind reader. So I have to say, hey, I'm having a really hard time. Do you have space to chat? And sometimes it's just through a text, a voice memo, but oftentimes she will stop everything and call me. You know, and so it's like, we will be like, oh, you know, sometimes it's what I'm saying, like, speak up, be understanding, everybody's got their own stuff, and then also allow yourself to be still seen and heard and loved. <laughs> you know, it's like, have understanding, and that I was like, no big deal, I know you have a lot going on, you've got your own stuff, but like, I want this. And a lot of times that ended up, that's created stronger bonds in friendships because you're everybody's going through your own stuff but if everybody's like well I don't want to bother anybody because everybody's going through and stuff then like you know it's like creating this deeper connection and really being able to be there for each other and also like deeper trust with ourselves to be able to open up to others I'm struggling I need somebody to talk to yeah Hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I feel like we could keep going. Um, I you're like singing to the choir on this one. Is that is that know, is right? that the Speaking expression? Language over here. <laughs> I'm like that's not the expression. Preach into the choir. So um, singing to the choir. Like, What's that oh, expression? It sounded good to me. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but it kind of I makes mean, more sense. I know, singing actually, to you're right. <laughs> I think you just you're onto something. Today. I'm that's changing be the, new one the expression. Forward. <laughs> all right, so Trisha, we have a lightning round of questions that we ask all of our guests. Oh, okay. We can get into those with you. Um, so, who have been your greatest mentors, teachers, people who have influenced you along your path up to this point? Some of the books that have had the biggest impact on me, and I'm also like totally forgetting. Oh, after the ecstasy, the laundry. Good old Jack is a book that I honestly one of my favorites. Okay, yeah, there we go. Because I was like, I haven't read it in a while, and I don't even know if I've actually read the whole thing. Yeah. But it was gifted to me, shelf. and that was another another thing that I just loved because it was like basically all the stories that I've gotten. That there's another one, uh, like punk rock, and the man, I can't forget. I can't remember what it's called. But basically, stories where it's showing like. You've done everything. <laughs> like whether you've lived all your dreams, you made everything happen and like, man, but you're still searching, have doubts and like struggle. And then, yeah, with the after the ecstasy of laundry, especially like that's like, oh, these people are like, you know, monks are like they're praying so hard. Like, you know, they've reached ecstasy actually, like in meditation, this thing that people are seeking. And then, oh, yeah, they still got to like do the laundry. Yep. Um, and so that, so for me, those sorts of books and teachings were always so great of just this reminder of like, yeah, like this is your life and there's going to be challenges no matter what, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much success, no matter how much, uh, praying, you know, or whatever meditation you do that you still are going to have the struggles of life. And so like, just like being present for it and not letting it take you totally down yeah. and out, I guess. Yeah. Um, and just like accepting our humanness. And that's like over and over and in the book, like I'm constantly trying to remind you to be compassionate. Like, don't beat yourself up if you do this. This is just part of our makeup. And like, you know, it's in like even like the end of the book is like, this is the end, but it's not the end because this work is continuous for the rest of your life. Sorry to tell Forever you. It's ever. like, I think that people <laughs> do put this sort of like, oh, well, once I go to therapy, then I'll be good. Or once I, you know, do this workshop, I'll be good. Or once I do this, like they're like waiting for like, when is this time that I'm just good? <laughs> it's like, but life's going to keep throwing stuff at us and opening up old wounds and grief and shame. And so like, just keep meeting yourself with where you are. And that's why this F the shoulds do the once, like fully committing to that elimination of shoulds has been so life-changing to me because it makes me so self-aware of what I'm thinking and doing and feeling and why so that I can take care of myself mm -hmm. in that space. Yeah. All right. So the next question is around flow. What is it that you're doing when you find yourself in that state of flow, right? That thing that you could blink your eyes and an entire day is gone. Hmm. I think the writing the book was, was like that for me. Um, but also like, yeah, just being with people that I love and where you like forget that even like phones exist right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and things and just like, yeah, like being present without in the world with people where you're just like laughing and um, mm. totally living. Yeah. Love it. And what breaks your heart, Trisha? Oh, wait, I did think also being in conversations like this, like I love podcasts and love conversations where I could just be in a conversation with somebody forever. What breaks my heart? So many things, but 
the the one that I'm most feeling is what breaks my heart is just how hard people are on themselves and like don't really feel like giving themselves a chance to live their lives. And again, it's, it's in these small things. Like I still can struggle with so much body image stuff where it's like, I'm stealing joy from myself because I'm be like, Oh, I can't wear that because it's not flattering or I'm not thin enough or like this. So these ways that we end up focusing on what's wrong with ourselves instead of just being like, I'm alive, I'm here. And even like, and one of the things I say to ask yourself in the book is to just simply question those inner asshole moments with is that really what I want to believe like how much that can just change you like you don't even have to get to like well I would love to believe this about myself and I love myself as I am and that's all great but that can be really hard for people so just ask is that really what I want to believe Mm. all right the last question it's the big one what's your favorite food oh (laughs) geez I love people's reactions to that question (laughs) It's uh, like the first thing that came up was sweet potatoes, which is random, but also makes sense because I have been making like sweet potato fries in my air fryer for probably like three weeks straight now, like almost every day. So, <laughs> air fryers, man. Right now, actually. They're like, that's like the, the new thing, thing right? <laughs> I even knew. I'm just catching but up. I was like, keep having conversations lately about air fryers. Who knew? Seriously. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm like trying to imagine if there's like some special perfect meal, but I don't know why sweet potatoes came up. <laughs> I mean, I'm not mad at sweet potato fries, period. Like I could eat those every day. So There we go. Sweet potato fries, maybe more Anywhere, specifically. Anytime, however you want to do it. Anytime. Love With it. a good dip. Oh, honey mustard dip. God. All right. All right. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> Uh, Trisha, thank you so much for coming on. This was a pleasure. I'm really, y'all listening, if you like go out, get the book, F the shoulds, do the wants. Um, it's just, it's it's helpful. It's intuitive. It's broken down in a really easy to digest way. Uh, and, and your voice, Trisha, is just, it's very clear and it's very modern. Like it brings things to us in a very modern way. And so I, I appreciate the messaging that you're you're putting out there in the world. Thank you so much. Trisha, where can people get in touch with you, connect with you if they want to after listening to this episode? Yeah, um, I'm TrishaHuffman.com. I also still have YourJoyologist.com. I'm mostly on Instagram at underscore Trisha Huffman. <laughs> but yeah, all the social medias. Um, and you can find the book anywhere. There's also the landing page is FTheShouldsDoTheOnce.com where you can also claim like a five-part bonus video series and a tapping meditation too if you um, go back there and enter your details. (laughs) Awesome. Love it. Cool. Well, I appreciate it. And um, good luck with the book. It's very exciting. I've got my own coming out soon too. So I'm watching you from afar and um, we'll have you, we'll have you back on again because I think there's more that we could dig into. (laughs) Awesome. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thanks, Trisha. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us, you can find us on Instagram at Vanessa S. Bennett and at Danae Logan Selkin.